May the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So this past week, I read an article from the Gospel Coalition that was discussing uh, Generation Z and its, quote, unprecedented identity crisis. So we don't have to look very far in our culture to see that questions such as, who am I? What determines my identity? What is the purpose of life? These kinds of questions are of supreme importance to many many people, and not just the young people. I mean, that that applies across the generations. Now, the church and Christians have often rightly responded by pointing to our identity in Christ. However, the author of this article suggests that we may have been leaving out an an important foundational part to that answer, a foundational part to the story. That is... She says we should not begin a theology of identity with who we are, but rather we need to start with who God is. So this is what she writes. Lists of who you are statements are filled with deep truth, but often little substance. You are loved, but those words hardly make a dent in love-hungry hearts if they don't understand who loves them. You are chosen, but chosen by whom? Why? Are we chosen? You are redeemed, but those words mean nothing if we don't deeply comprehend what we're redeemed from and the greatness of our Redeemer's heart. Far too often we open with the you are, we are, I am story instead of the he is story. Now, the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes also spends a lot of time wrestling with these kinds of identity issues. And it might not be couched in those terms, but it it very much is talking about the same kind of things. Now, this book is attributed to King Solomon using the title, The Preacher, and it's part of what we call the wisdom literature of the scriptures, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And like all of the wisdom literature in the Bible... Ecclesiastes comes to us in the form of poetry. It's not prose, it's poetry. Sometimes if you have the King James, it kind of, because it does every verse, every line, it's hard to see that. But if you have, um, say, like the ESVs and the pews, um, that poetic form is very easy to see in all of those wisdom books. Have you ever stopped to wonder why God gave all the wisdom literature as poetry? The deep lessons that we need in order to wisely live as human beings, it requires more than just being told what to do. It requires more than um, mere information. It even requires more than story. No, we need beauty, metaphor, song, art. And to that end, the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom through inspired poetry. So we have the Psalms, and that teaches us how to process the whole range of human emotion uh, through prayer and singing to God. And it then puts that emotion into perspective as we bring it before the Lord. We then have the Proverbs, which tell us how life works, if the way it usually works, if we just follow God and his ways. The Proverbs aren't absolute promises, by the way. It's general principles, right? This is how life typically works. It's not promises. But that's the way things normally go. 
We have the book of Job, which wrestles with that big question of why bad things happen to good people. We have the Song of Songs that teaches us the love of Christ for his people through the medium of love poetry between a man and a woman. And then we have Ecclesiastes, which asks about the purpose of life. Ecclesiastes asks whether there's more to life than just living. In Ecclesiastes, the preacher looks at his very successful life and says, is this as good as it gets? So please turn in your Bibles to this morning's Old Testament lesson for morning prayer, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Um, you won't find that in your prayer book, because uh, it's the morning prayer lesson, not the epistle or the gospel, but uh, it is in, uh, in your pew Bibles there. I looked up the page, but I didn't, I don't have it, so... Um, <laughs> You'll have, to, you'll have to navigate that one on your own. It's not going to be the same as in my Bible here. So, Ecclesiastes 2, beginning at verse 1. I said in mine heart, go now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart also with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly till I might see what, that, what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heavens all the days of their life. I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the woods that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in mine house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasures of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So if you're a musician, he was a gearhead collecting all the stuff. I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. And there was no profit under the sun. So the preacher says that he tried it all. He tried pleasure, laughter, wine, great works of building, acquiring material goods and experiences, whatever he would want. Yet it was vanity and vexation of spirit. He says, ultimately, this did me no good. It was, as the song says, dust in the wind. He then turns to explore wisdom and folly. After all, isn't Solomon known for his wisdom? Surely wisdom will give him his purpose. Let's pick up in verse 12. And I turn myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do that cometh after the king, even that which hath already been done? Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly, as far as light excelleth darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happened to them all. 
Then I, then I said in my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity, for there is no remembrance of the wise more than the fool forever, seeing that which is now in the days to come shall be all forgotten. And how dieth the wise man as the fool? Therefore I hated life, because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. So he says, wisdom is indeed much better than folly. It's good to be wise, but we still have a big problem. In the end, the wise men and the fool both die. Both will eventually be forgotten. The preacher concludes, ultimately, neither one's better off. It's all the same. In fact, he seems even more depressed, saying that he hated life for all his vanity and vexation of spirit. So if all the stuff, all the experiences, they do nothing. And if even wisdom itself is ultimately futile, what is left for the preacher but to despair? And that's exactly what we see. Verse 18. Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. And, and who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor wherein I have labored and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity. Yet to a man that hath not labored therein shall he leave it for his portion. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what hath man of all his labor and of his vexation of his heart, wherein he had labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows, and his travail grief, yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This also is vanity. Most of the book carries on in this same vein. The preacher searches and explores, all the while repeating the, the refrain, this also is vanity. And as we go throughout the book, we get very few answers to these very real questions. We get a few, but ultimately we are left a little bit unsatisfied. There's a reason that Ecclesiastes is a favorite in uh, freshman level classes on ancient literature and uh, Western civilization. Young folks who are getting their first real taste of adulthood, they can relate to the preacher's journey. But the same is also true for us middle-aged folk in the midst of the rat race. We end up in the same place, right? Or for the, for the older folk who are in the twilight of life, we all want to know our purpose. We all want to know that it's been worthwhile in the end. We all have a tendency to look at life and ask, is, this all, is that all there is? In our gospel passage from the beginning of Luke 5, Simon Peter and his fishing partners have similarly been toiling all night without anything to show for it. All their work has been vanity. Now, in my other job as a real estate appraiser, I know how frustrating and how worrisome it can be when business is uncomfortably slow. And it's even worse when business is completely dead. Um, <laughs> my, my business was completely dead just before Heather and I got married for about three months. It was, it was very scary. Perhaps Simon Peter and his friends 
They were desperate and they were in debt, like we see in the, uh, the way it's portrayed in the TV show The Chosen, in that dramatization. Or maybe it wasn't that bad. Maybe it was just a really annoying day of unfruitfulness. Any sportsman has experienced that, right? If you've ever gone fishing or hunting, sometimes you get nothing. Every businessman has had days like that, where you've worked and worked and worked and nothing to show for it. Either way, our Lord Jesus intervenes. Jesus steps in. He tells them to try one more time. And then Jesus provides them with a miraculous catch of fish that is so lavish that the boats were in danger of sinking. They were in danger of being swamped. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have been tempted to see that kind of windfall as a solution to all my problems. Hey, let's pay off those debts. Let's put a nice nest egg away. Let's, let's, uh, let's fix up the house. Maybe let's buy that new boat. Maybe expand the business. Let's coast for a little while. Things are good. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes says that approach is not going to bring fulfillment. It's not going to ultimately do much for you. It won't fix the identity crisis. It won't answer those big questions. And at some level, we see that Simon Peter knows this also. He doesn't work out a plan to get those fish to market and to collect some coin. That's not what he does. Rather than seeing the miraculous provision of fish as a source of his security, Peter realizes that he's come face to face with the promised Messiah. He realizes that he's in no shape to stand tall before that kind of holiness. Peter knows his own sinfulness. He knows that there is no spiritual health in him and that he is a miserable offender and he begs the Lord to leave him. In short, Peter's scared. And he's much more scared at being face to face with the Lord than he was at that financial problem. Much more scared to be in the Lord's presence than at the prospect of losing his livelihood. But Jesus, in his wisdom and in his mercy, he gives Peter instead a new identity. He gives him a new purpose. The last verse of our gospel uh, in uh, Luke 5, verses 10 and 11. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. In the miracle of the catch of fish, Peter and his friends saw Jesus for who he is, the long-promised Messiah who has been empowered by God to do great acts and to usher in the kingdom of heaven. And to make matters even more interesting, the Messiah had called these guys to be his followers. Now, for the next three years, Peter and the other guys there, as well as the other apostles, they would indeed get to know who Jesus is. And through him, they would get to know who God is. They would come to understand who it is that loves them and what it means then to be loved. They would come to understand who has chosen them and why they were chosen, and therefore that they were chosen. They would come to understand what it means to be redeemed, what they were redeemed from, and who the one that redeemed them was. 
And through all that, they would become fishers of men. They would spread the good news of Christ and the kingdom to all the world. We see a glimpse of this in, uh, in the first epistle of St. Peter, where, where St. Peter writes this. Ye also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient. Whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar, that means special, <laughs> people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And so here then is that counter to the vanity that the preacher despairs over in Ecclesiastes. Here's the counter to the vanity that we see in the world all around us. Here we see who we are in Christ and what he's done for us. We're the living stones with which God builds up his spiritual house. We are the holy and royal priesthood that offers acceptable sacrifices to God. We're the chosen generation, holy nation, special people who show forth God's praises. Because he has shown mercy to us miserable offenders. He did not depart from us sinful men. He made us who were strangers into his people. He made us co-heirs with his son. And this is who we are in Christ. This is our identity, and it's not all vanity. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.